Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You'll also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Glad that you joined us here for another episode of Al Bernstein Unplugged. Um, on this show, we've got some fun things to talk about. Uh, we're going to do a flashback to perhaps the greatest fight I ever announced, and that was um, Jose Luis Castillo against Diego Corrales in their first fight. We also have a terrific interview with Kevin Ioli, and I'm going to answer some of your questions, uh, including the question, does Arturo Gatti belong in the Hall of Fame? I'm going to save that till toward the end of uh, the show, but uh, you're going to hear my thoughts on that. Joining me as always, my cohort here on the show, uh, showing us that he can play uh, under the toughest of conditions. My friend Tripp Mitchell, who had um, surgery uh, just a week or so ago. Tripp, you're back already. Yes, you've got to write and broadcast in pain and never complain. That's a derivation of the line. But, you know, you, you, in a tough man sport, you got to come back. So I had the hip replaced on Monday, and I'm here the following Monday. And, you know, Al had a list of people that he wanted to have take my place. And when I saw that list, I got healthy in a hurry. <laughs> that was it. You, you, well, we do. I think the best way to motivate anyone, obviously, is fear, correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, what other way? Is there another way to do that? I don't even know. So yeah, okay. I thought it was. I thought it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't sensitive of me to send you that list of people the day after you had your surgery and say you better be back the following week. I didn't think that was right. But, but hey, what the heck? And you know, I'm off pain pills. I, uh, this has gotten me to a good place in a hurry. Yes, well, it is essential. I, anybody that says they can do that kind of stuff and not do pain pills after, I'm sorry. That's just. That's not, that's not correct, you know. So I know, um, well, I bet. I'm happy that you're feeling better and, uh, uh, and back for another episode. And we have lots of fun things to talk about, including some fighters that are kind of making a little news again with what they're saying. Well, we've got a situation where a couple different divisions that fighters are really talking about things they want to do. And, and Plant, Kaylee Plant, who is a great up-and-comer fighter is talking about some of the fights that he would like to have made and um, Benavidez is a natural for that that could be a heck of a fight yeah Caleb Plant of course the IBF champion um, in the 168 pound division uh, wants to do a unifying match with David Benavides and this week he talked about that and it's a match that people have been talking about uh, for months and Plant, who's 27, Benavides only 23. Uh, it is a perfect stylistic matchup because Caleb Plant is a boxer puncher. David Benavides is an aggressive fighter who throws lots of punches. He's a volume punching fighter uh, who is just has an all-out aggressive style. And many people believe that would be it would be a terrific fight. Plant has kind of gone public to try and put some pressure on. Um, Benavides and his uh, promoter Samson Lukowitz uh, to try and get them to come to the table. Now, uh, there are a number of people I know behind the scenes pushing to make this fight, this title unification matchup, 
uh, everyone feels like it would be a, a, a terrific fight. Plant is kind of putting it on Benavides as if, uh, because Samson Lukowitz made a comment that he didn't think this fight had the market value it needed to have and might have to wait till next year. But um, Plant is suggesting he wants it now. And Caleb Plant, interestingly, is thought of probably in a 168-pound division as maybe one of the most vulnerable of champions. Uh, he, he was an upset winner over Jose Uscadegui when he won the title and has only had one defense since. And uh, he still hasn't had that uh, defining fight to show people uh, that he is right at the top of the 168-pound division, though he has performed very well in his fight. So we'll see if that fight can happen uh, moving forward. And how big a fight would that be? That's not a pay-per-view fight. That's a Showtime boxing fight. Where would you yeah, put the dollars? I think, uh, you know, it would end up on Showtime or Fox, one of those net, one of the networks. Uh, we would love to have that fight on Showtime, and 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 I I know people are pushing for it, and it's it's the kind of fight though that in the sport of boxing right now, it, it those are the fights that need to get made. Fights that are. If you wait forever, the old line, you know, Bob Arum's great line from before, that we need the fight to marinate, and then sometimes they marinate and they <laughs> never happen. And uh, this is one of those fights I think that would be, um, would be important to have now, as the next one we're going to talk about is as well. Well, the Charlo Rosario fight, uh, Juan Williams commented that this would be really a, Julian Williams, I should say, a 50-50 fight, and could be a heck of a match. And you really could, yeah. J. Rock Williams, who fought both these men and lost to them both, but uh, J. Rock's a terrific fighter and a former champion, and one of the most honest and interesting guys in the sport. We will have him as a future guest, um, and people will see what I'm talking about. He's, he's just a delightful, uh, a really insightful guy about boxing, and 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 will, has fought everybody put in front of him, uh, and he has a very unique perspective on the idea of this fight, which is also being talked about as a possible fight even this year when boxing comes back. Um, he thinks that these 254-pound champions in both Charlo and Jelson uh, uh, Rosario are 154-pound champions, that this title unification match, he believes, would be very, very close. He said, I, I just think whoever shows up with their A game, he feels, can win the fight. Jamal Charlo is clearly, uh, at this juncture, probably thought of as maybe uh, the top in the 154-pound division or can lay claim to that in any case um, after his win over uh, Tony Harrison uh, in their rematch. And uh, Rosario maybe surprised some people with his upset win over Julian Williams, but um, didn't surprise himself. He felt that he had a chance to win that fight. They are both terrific fighters. And by the way, this 154-pound division, in my opinion, is in the top two or three divisions in terms of depth and talent. I mean, think about the names of these fighters. We talked about Charlo Rosario, Julian Williams, former champion. Uh, there's also Tony Harrison, who uh, won the championship from Charlo and then lost the rematch. Erickson Lubin, who is a terrifically talented fighter who has yet to have a chance um, at a world title. Uh, also, Arislandi Lara, the longtime 154-pound title holder who just continues to, to be a top contender. He, of course, has been champion. Brian Castaño, who fought uh, 
Blondie, Ersan, Lara in a great fight. And Jared Hurd, who was a champion. So when you look at all those names, it's easy to see why we think the 154-pound division is among the best in boxing. And I am that fight and the one that we just talked about with, uh, with uh, Caleb Plant and David Benavides are the kinds of fights that I really believe it's important for boxing to make either at the end of this year when boxing is coming back to show boxing fans the sport is serious about giving them good product. I know and I understand that there probably won't be any live crowds uh, through the remainder of 2020 or certainly not for a long time this year. And it does take away some revenue for some of these important fights to be made. Um, and that's where probably television networks and the promoters themselves and the fighters themselves are all going to have to figure out ways to create enough revenue to make the, this, these fights happen. And maybe some concessions are going to have to be made. But it's very important for the sport for these fights uh, to be made. Uh, on this show, we talk about great fights that were made. And that is a segment that we call our flashback. Tonight's flashback looks at the very best fight that I have ever announced. And that's quite a statement for me to make. Uh, it's over a 40-year career. It is a title unification lightweight matchup from May 7, 2005, featuring Jose Luis Castillo and Diego Corrales. That fight recently had its 15th anniversary. And uh, it was... An extraordinary evening. Interestingly, it was held at the Mandalay Bay Event Center. And even though just about everybody thought it was going to be a terrific fight, for whatever reason, it didn't catch fire in terms of box office appeal. And in that large Mandalay Bay Event Center, there were only about 4,500 people there to witness this fight. However, they would eventually sound like 16,000 because what transpired in front of them was astonishingly good. Uh, it was a fight that the tone was set in the very first round, partially because of a tactical maneuver by Diego Corrales. Corrales had joined with Joe Goosen, uh, a new trainer, um, after he had lost to Joao Casamayor, he got with Casamayor's trainer, who had just left Casamayor, Joe Goosen. And Goosen, for the rematch with Casamayor, turned Corrales more into a boxer puncher, using the jab, staying on the outside, but still landing effective punches. Everyone, and I mean everyone, thought that would be the strategy that Corrales would use against the hard-punching, aggressive, terrific inside fighting Jose Luis Castillo. Guess what? It wasn't. Corrales walked out in round one and planted himself exactly in front of Jose Luis Castillo. They battled for that whole three minutes like they were in a phone booth, and that set the stage for this fight. Now, over the first three or four rounds, I commented several times during the fight that while the strategy was working for Corrales, because he, he was fighting very well, though the rounds were close, uh, he was doing very good work on the inside against Castillo. This strategy may or may not be successful for him in the long term in this fight. And Castillo had a reputation for getting stronger as uh, as fights continue. And, and so as we were heading into the middle rounds, and we thought that might, you know, that might be the case, 
Well, after round one, we would see uh, seven amazing rounds uh, in this fight. Uh, over the next seven rounds of this match, we just saw these two men stand in front of each other in a pitched battle. And both men landed phenomenal punches, and neither man went down. Um, though there was a point at the end of round seven where a big left hook hurt Jose Luis Castillo, but it came only 10 seconds before the round ended, and it didn't give Diego Corrales enough time to really follow through. We went to rounds eight and nine, which were wildly exciting. There was the same kind of action we'd seen throughout the entire fight. And then we got to round number 10, which is one of the most talked about rounds uh, in recent boxing history. Early in the round, Castillo came out and landed a huge left hook that knocked Corrales down. Corrales's mouthpiece came out as he was getting up and they had to replace that and keep that in the back of your mind because it has bearing on what is gonna happen in just a moment or two. Then, only about 25 seconds later, it would be another knockdown with another left hook uh, in which Corrales would hit the canvas. And this time he spit his mouthpiece out. When referee Tony Weeks got him up, he deducted a point from uh, Corrales and tried as quickly as he could to get him over to the corner uh, where Joe Goosen, his trainer, could replace the mouthpiece. While he had him over there, Joe Goosen uttered these infamous words, you better effing get on the inside now. <laughs> and that is, in fact, what Corrales did because an amazing thing then happened. He landed a big counter right hand as Castillo was coming in to try to close the show. It staggered Castillo. And then Corrales was able to follow up on that. He launched his own attack amazingly after being down twice with a, an eye that was almost swollen shut. After having taken all this punishment, he hurt Castillo. He would get Castillo against the ropes and land a series of punches. And while Castillo appeared with his hands down to be defenseless, Tony Weeks stepped in to, uh, to stop the fight. Uh, it was, I said at the time, it was the greatest comeback within a round to win a fight uh, that I had ever seen and maybe one of the best in, uh, in boxing history. Uh, the man who called that fight with me, uh, my partner, Steve Albert, who did one of the great calls uh, that uh, I've ever been uh, a part of. He was just phenomenal on this fight. Uh, at the end, uh, said something that was uh, pretty extraordinary. Here are the words of Steve Albert right at the end of that fight. Diego Corrales said he would go through hell before losing this fight. He may have. One of the great lines ever uttered by a play-by-play uh, -play announcer, and it was so true uh, based on what we saw in this fight. Now let's talk about Tony Weeks, the referee in this fight a little bit, because he has been a flashpoint of discussion about this match. Here's my view. Tony Weeks during the course of this fight, as I said during the broadcast, I thought did an excellent job of not breaking the two fighters when they were working on the inside. He could have panicked the some referees doing, broken them too soon and would have 
stop the great action that we saw in this fight. He also refrained from taking points from either man for low blows. Both were doing a lot of body work, and some of the punches strayed low, but I, he rightfully decided, and I agree, that it was not intentional. Uh, and while he did a couple times remind them and warn them, you've got to keep those punches up, he never took a point away, so he never inserted himself into the fight in that regard. I thought that was appropriate. Finally, the, the big controversy surrounds what he did with, when Diego Corrales spit his mouthpiece out after the second knockdown. Some people believe that Tony Weeks should have immediately disqualified uh, Diego Corrales. And I guess you can make a case for that. I personally think he did the right thing in taking a point away and trying to do it as quickly as possible so that he didn't take away the advantage that Castillo had from knocking him down. And remember, by taking a point away, he made that round probably a 10-6 round if it had concluded for Jose Luis Castillo because there were two knockdowns already in the round plus a point deduction. That would have brought it down to a 10-6 round. So what he was doing was further making it unlikely and penalizing Corrales and making it unlikely that he could win a decision with only two rounds left. So I think it was the appropriate move. Did it give Castillo uh, a disadvantage a little bit? It may have, and it gave Corrales a few moments extra to gather his wits about him, but I still think it was, it was the appropriate move by, uh, by uh, Tony Weeks. I mentioned it's the best fight I've ever announced. And of course I did Hagler Hearns, which we've done on the flashbacks here. Uh, so it's got some competition. The reason I have this as the best fight I've ever announced is that it's Hagler Hearns times three. It, it was not just exciting. It was fought at a skill level that was astonishing. Both these men put on a clinic on inside fighting. It's one of the best jobs of inside fighting that I've ever seen by two fighters in the same fight, working the body and the head, throwing an amazing variety of punches. Both men used hooks to the body, hooks to the head, double left hooks, uppercuts, um, chopping right hands. They, were, they did everything you can do on the inside offensively. And it was, it was just an astonishing fight. They would fight one more time uh, and Castillo would win by knockout. It was the third fight scheduled, but Castillo couldn't make weight, and the fight didn't happen. Uh, but this fight, uh, the first Castillo-Corrales fight, will go down in history as maybe the best lightweight championship match of all time. And as I said, certainly the best fight I've announced in my 40-year career. Well, on hand to cover that fight, as he uh, has been for so many other fights, uh, the great boxing writer Kevin Ioli. Uh, Kevin, who began his career um, in covering boxing for the Las Vegas Review Journal, moved to Yahoo Sports, and he has become one of the most important voices covering boxing uh, that the sport has. He's a, a very objective, fair, and uh, informative writer. Uh, and, and in addition to that, he's also a great wordsmith. So when the occasion calls for it, he can create some great prose. Here is the conversation that I had with Kevin Iola. 
Kevin, thank you for taking some time with us uh, as we you continue to cover the boxing beat, though it's uh, a little different than it when it's uh, got activity going on in terms of fights. But there's no lack of, of, of news in a way because the participants in the sport are, are kind of making news and you have to alter how you do the stories because you're covering um, kind of developments. And one of the developments that uh, people have been talking about during this time is whether Deontay Wilder and uh, Pulev would, would step aside so that they could have an Anthony Joshua um, Tyson Fury match, which some have rumored to be already talked about uh, by their promoters. And you wrote a very good column about that, kind of explaining in layman's terms why it's not really fair to Wilder and Pulev. Yeah, Al, you know, I mean, I think we all want to see Joshua Fury. I mean, that's what we want to get to. We want to get to the two best guys and have one champion. And that's what a Joshua Fury fight would provide. But I think people were thinking with their hearts and not with their heads in this case. You know, um, if you put yourself in either Pulev or Deontay Wilder's case, you know, and you look at it from their perspective, why would they give this up? They earned their shot to get what they wanted. You know, Deontay admittedly fought terribly against Tyson yeah. in the fight in February. I mean, he got knocked out in the seventh round. Tyson Fury told him beforehand what he was going to do, and Deontay still <laughs> wasn't prepared for he it. Did. And uh, so, you know, hey, I get that he didn't do well, but he got the opportunity to get this rematch by going 42-0-1 in his first 43 fights with 41 knockouts. So he had earned this, the right to have this ability to get a rematch in case of a loss. Pulev, you know, didn't have the same kind of success, but the same thing, he won the fight that the IBF told him he had to win right. to get into position to be the mandatory. Now you're going to tell him, well, we'll pay you a little bit of money and step aside, and then we'll fight you later. Well, when you have a contract to fight them and, they, and then and you can't get the fight, what makes you think that when they promise you later, you're going to get it? I right. think, you know, the fact that, especially in Wilder's case, there's so much money. What could they pay him? Because think about it from this standpoint, Al. You pay him $5 million to step aside. Well, he was going to make about $30 million for the fight. Right. And in his mind, he's going to win the fight. So then he's going to go into another fight with Joshua, say, for another 30 or more million. So he's giving up a ton of money to allow that one fight to happen. It just doesn't make sense for him. Yeah, and he has the contractual right to get the fight. So, um, and and I thought you you made a good point because in your column you 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 relate it to uh, uh, somebody that's going to be passed over for a job uh, in their firm, uh, and they're told, "Well, just wait because we want this other person to get it," even though you're you're you were agreed to get that job. So, um, you know. It, in an everyday life experience, you can sure understand Wilder and Pulev's viewpoint. Um, another heavyweight who is in the news because of developments uh, is Andy Ruiz, the gentleman that upset Anthony Joshua. And then, of course, he lost to Joshua the next time out in a uh, less than spirited effort on his part. And many people suggested that uh, he needed, in addition to looking within and trying to uh, be more committed to the sport. He needed some new help in terms of training. And Eddie Reynoso, the trainer of uh, Canelo Alvarez, apparently has signed on to work with Ruiz. That is correct. Yeah, Eddie, Eddie Reynoso is the trainer. So uh, I think Eddie, and I mentioned this in my column, I think Eddie is kind of like the next in the line of the great trainers. I think he's the successor to Freddie Roach and to Eddie Fudge and to Emmanuel Stewart and all those people. I, I really think Eddie Reynoso is a great, 
great trainer. But, you know, I'll say this. You, you hit the nail on the head in part of what you said there. You said he had a look within. I don't think his problem before was, was the trainer. Manny Robles was a terrific trainer, knows what he's doing, and he got him and helped him get to the championship. What the problem with Andy Ruiz was he didn't take responsibility himself. And if, if Reynoso could do one thing, it's maybe to get Ruiz to work hard. And if Ruiz works hard, this guy has a lot of talent. He's never yeah. gonna be a bodybuilder. He's never going to, you know, have the body that people, you know, Mike Weaver, if, if the old timers remember Mike yes, Weaver. Yes, I remember Mike Weaver. Hercules, right? Yes. He's never going to look like that. But he's a guy that can fight. He's got fast hands, fast feet, and he knows how to put together his punches. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if Andy Ruiz you know, had some discipline and a guy like Reynoso who could just make some small adjustments, I think he's a big factor in that division. I agree. He's got talent, and we saw it not just in the Joshua fight, but in fights previous to that. Now, the man that Eddie Reynoso works with that is, uh, of course, one of the major icons in boxing, Canelo Alvarez, who is like, uh, like all boxers on hold now, and we're waiting to see whether when he comes back it's going to be against uh, Triple G or who it will be exactly. Um, but you wrote a very interesting column that I thought was exceptional, and I urge people to go look at it on Yahoo Sports, um, about the relationship of Canelo and Oscar De La Hoya, which is a constantly evolving uh, situation. Yeah. And I thought it was intriguing because his relationship with Canelo obviously has a huge impact on Oscar De La Hoya and Golden Boy promotions and impacts of the sport uh, because Canelo is such a big figure. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. And I mean, you know, Oscar wanted, like, as an example, Oscar wanted Canelo to fight Triple G when he fought Kovalev. And Canelo said, you know, I'm in charge here. You don't make these calls. I make the calls. And they kind of, so Canelo just was obstinate and said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do what I want to do. And he kind of flexed his muscles and, and showed who was the boss. It's what Oscar did when Oscar was the fighter. You know, they might say, we want you to fight somebody else. And he fought who he wanted to fight. Um, and I think, you know, the one thing that I, I was impressed with Oscar, Al, Oscar hasn't usually been very introspective in his career, but I thought Mm -hmm. he showed that he he understood what was going on. And he said, it's just business. I'm not taking it personal that Canelo was angry at me. And and he showed a willingness to work with him and to cooperate with him. And I think that could lead to the the fights that we want to see. And I, you know, depending on how it goes in terms of fans, I, I think uh, the first fight out of the shoot would be Canelo versus Triple G. Uh, the problem they have, of course, is paying the fighters if there right. are no fans in the in the arena. But that is what they would, you know, would like to get done. And I think will happen, assuming that, that we can get fans in when it happens. But I think the fact that Oscar kind of would look within showed some growth and maturity on his part. And he admitted that and that he learned from past feuds with not only Canelo, but Bob Arum in the past. And, and it, it helped him to make, deal with this situation better. Well, if, yeah, that I a hundred percent accurate. And if Canelo and uh, Oscar De La Hoya's relationship is complicated no less complicated, although maybe it's simple because it, they just pretty much interact badly, is the relationship between two men that you and I have known for many years. And I can think I can safely say both you and I have had very good business and personal relationships to the point where we uh, have known them and been amiable with them. 
to both Bob Arum, who you referenced a moment ago, and Dana White, who you cover all the time in your MMA beat, and who I've had many dealings with over the years, both um, with charities that he's worked with, uh, including my uh, Caring Place charity, and just in general. Dana White and Bob, and Bob Arum, collectively between the two of them, have one of the most toxic relationships in sports. And it, it was on display again um, in the last week or two when Aram suggested, and he did it on an interview I just did with him, uh, that, you know, Dana White moving his sport back quicker is kind of like a cowboy mentality. And they're at it again, as they say. Yeah, Dana's not one to take uh, shots without firing back. And so, you know, Bob, I think, you know, Bob would have been better off, you know, because the UFC is going to set a table for what they need to do, right? So sit back and watch and say, okay, what mistakes did they make? What good things did they do? Let's incorporate the good things. Right. Let's avoid the mistakes. But instead, you know, he made, he made it a personal thing. And that's how Bob has been. And I think part of the reason Bob has been so successful is he's always willing to kind of stick his nose in there. But sometimes it comes back to bite him like it did in this case. And um, Dana had been quiet about Bob for quite a long time. You know, there, there was a little bit of silence, wasn't there? And then finally he said, you know what, I am not going <laughs> to take this. And he, and he went off. And I, I, I think on a family podcast, we can't even come close. We no. can't even tell the words that he was saying. But uh, Dana was not, was not happy with Bob, and he, and he let him know it. Uh, I think Todd DeBuff, the uh, top-ranked president, if he could muzzle Bob, uh, he, he would do that. But, uh, you know, he, you know, he and many others have tried over the years, and, and they haven't been able, able to uh, shut him up. And I don't think anybody is going to before Bob leaves us. No, that's true. He will always speak his mind, that's for sure. And, the, and it is fascinating that even, even times when it looked like they were going to have a – a somewhat civil public relations uh, ship, it seemed like something would happen and it would be like a perfect storm of, oh, of course, this situation had to happen so that they'll fight some more. Right. Like they're not destined to be, to have a cordial relationship on any level. You know, the, the thing about it is that uh, I think these are the two best promoters in on each side, right? Dana right, White, exactly. In my mind, Dana White is the best promoter that's ever been in combat sports. I think what he has done gives him, earns him that. And I don't say that lightly because I respect what Bob and Top Rank and, and other promoters have done. Um, and Bob is clearly the goat of boxing promoters. And I think, you know, they're kind of at the very top of the pecking mm -hmm. order. You know, there's a little bit of ego on both sides. And certainly when, you know, they, they want to go back and forth. Bob uh, is not in the demographic of the UFC fan base, right? And so he does not get it. And, you know, and he doesn't have to get it, right? It, it's right. not his business and he has no reason to try to get it. But because he doesn't, that frustrates Dana, who Dana is a huge boxing fan. Right, absolutely. I can tell you with what, out doubt, I talk to him about fights all the time right. and you know, meaning boxing matches and, uh, and he's into it. So he kind of gets frustrated that Bob won't, you know, kind of see things his way and, and open his eyes to what's going on in the MMA where he, he sees it Bob's way. But I think these two are kind of like oil and vinegar and it's always going to be. Uh... Yeah. I don't, I don't know that we'll see any change uh, in the near future in that regard. You are a Hall of Famer. You have been uh, you're inducted into Nevada uh, Boxing Hall of Fame. Uh, you will at some point – I am absolutely confident being the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Oh, uh, they will put you in there um, because if they don't, I am, gonna, I am going to withdraw myself as a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. That's, I'm saying I resign if they don't put you in. So um, 
<laughs> I'm writing a check and uh, slipping under the door here in a few minutes. Right, write that down because you know that's a, that's a, that's a that's a that's a promise. Um, and uh, you've been, you know, you have um, you're in an interesting position as a uh, a writer and a a person that covers um, boxing and does it also with great interviews on uh, Yahoo Sports as well on video. But you've made a fascinating transition from the time when you were a print writer for newspapers here in Las Vegas. And then you signed on with Yahoo Sports in 2007, I believe. Right. And, and you've had a you know, very successful run there. And we've seen boxing journalism change from the print medium to the digital medium. It's a hard question to condense, but you can answer it any way you feel like. You're a part of that change. You, you are a driving force in that change. But there are other elements to it that are, that, you know, in terms of other places that are, let's say, different than Yahoo Sports. Oh, sure. What has the, this change to digital? What are some of the biggest changes it's made to how boxing is covered? Well, there, there's no doubt. The number one thing is reaction, right? Um, there's instant reaction to when you write something. Uh, yeah. It's on social media or at the comments at the bottom of your story. You know, I worked in a newspaper before I went to you. I had my first full-time job when I was 19 years old. So that was 1978. I had a full-time job. I was still in college. I had a full-time job at a small newspaper. And I would go until from 1978 to 2007. I, I was always employed in a newspaper. So all those years... Every now and then you get a letter to the editor and somebody write and they were fired up about what you would say and they would say you're stupid and you could just throw the letter in the trash. <laughs> and now if I pick somebody to win, well, Kevin is on this guy's payroll or he, he likes that person or, or whatever the case. And you get the feedback and the fans let you know and they uh, and, and boy, do they let you know. And, and sometimes, think, you know, it's not completely nuanced, I've noticed. Not exactly. And uh, the fact that, you know, they, they can't take the fact that we have a slightly different yeah. opinion, but that doesn't mean that I hate you or you hate me, right? But the, yeah, exactly. think they, they do hate me. <laughs> That's intriguing. And the other, the other uh, thing about this is that it, uh, the outlets that cover boxing, some are more stringently edited and regulated and some are not. So it's created also, and it's true in all other sports in some respects too, it's created this, this question of what is a recognized, in quotes, outlet to cover the sport. Right. And I mean, I, I love the fact, and you know, I love journalism. And so I get a lot of people hit me on private messages on Twitter, on Instagram and say, hey, I want advice. I'm sure you get that from broadcast. Sure that they want advice on how they can get into it. And so I want to encourage that. And I want to encourage good journalism. And I want to encourage people because I've had a great career in this business and, and journalism has been good to me and provided a great life for my family and myself. So I want to share that with other people on down the road. Um, and so, you know, the, you, you get the opportunity to have a little bit of influence on other people. Like my site, you know, we are not in the nuance of X is fighting Y at Z, you know, unless it's a really big thing, because right. what I find at our site, you know, because Yahoo has such broad traffic, 
we are more generalist and specialist. Right. So people are not coming to our site to find the kind of things that say Mike Coppinger on the athletic tweets out about, you know, the latest rumor, who's going to be fighting who on Showtime that Friday night. But when they want to read, you know, Jericho Walton's backstory, then they're going to come and see, you know, see what I have to say. And that's where my niche is. But so I just try to tell people, when they are looking at what they do, the, the number there, there's two things: be accurate, right. not first, and be fair. And right. so, you know, and people say to me, "How come you know Dana White will get mad at somebody else for criticizing him, but he doesn't get mad at you?" Well, he gets mad at me, but he understands if I criticize him that it's a good faith criticism that I believe, and maybe he thinks I'm wrong, but I'm not taking a personal attack at him or a personal attack at his business. I'm saying my belief based on facts, you know, he knows I've done my research and then I, I provide my opinion. A lot of people, they feel like they can just go out there and take, you know, Hey Al, you know, you're a horrible broadcaster and they take a right. shot at you without ever any basis of knowledge right. of being able to say, you know, they don't know what your job is. If I'm going to criticize you and doing what you do. One, I want to know as much about what, what your requirements are as possible. And so I think, you know, that is the thing, be accurate and be fair and be accountable. So, you know what? A lot of times if I write a call and criticizing somebody, I call them or text them the next day because I want them to be able to, if they want to blow up at me, I want them to be able to do it and, and tell me what they thought because it's only fair. Like I always give them that opportunity in advance to, you know, comment. I'm never going to criticize somebody without giving them a chance to right. comment. But sometimes, you know, they're, they're not available or they choose not to call you back. Now they see it in print and everybody's calling them. So they call you. Um, sure. And, that, you know, but I always want to make myself available. And I think if you do that, not everybody's going to agree with everything you say, but they're going to respect you because they know that you're fair. And then on the next story, if you see it their way, that you'll tell it their way. Yeah, that's well, well put. And uh, those are the basic tenets of journalism that um, if people – adhere to them, you know, as a former newspaper man from the old days, uh, I, uh, much of that rings true to me. So you and I, once many years ago on my radio show, did a, uh, what I still consider to be my favorite 15 or 20 minutes or 25 minutes of radio, in which, wow. yeah, it's, yeah it's, 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 it's right at the top of the list, where we, we would joke around about uh, uh, sports and uh and you of course are a, a a great pittsburgh fan you you were born in pittsburgh you're a, a fan of all the teams in pittsburgh and so i uh, consider my area of expertise uh tv westerns this is sad given that i'm a national sportscaster so sad that that should be the, my my <laughs> your expertise. expertise but you know it's what i'm stuck with you of course know all about pittsburgh sports so i'm only telling this story to help ask a question and we had a quiz where you got to ask me questions about TV Westerns, and I got to ask you questions about uh, Pittsburgh sports. We both, interestingly, and this speaks, I believe, to both of us, and I'm going to pat us both on the back, we asked fair questions, ones that were answerable but were a little tough, and you edged me out by just a, a smidge. And it was so much fun. And... So you are my go-to guy for that. And I, I want to give you a chance on this show to say something that I, you've probably been asked before, but I've never heard you uh, say this precisely. And I'm not going to give you a certain number, but if you had to pick three or four or whatever number you feel like of your top Pittsburgh 
sports athletes or personalities that you admire the most, that you love the most over the years, who would they be? Well, so my number one person is not Pittsburgh, Muhammad Ali, but everybody else would be Pittsburgh on the okay. list. Okay. So I'm going to throw Ali. Fair enough. So my, my number you one. You probably went through Pittsburgh on an airplane at one point. At least flew over top, yes. And, yeah, and, and sure. I was there and probably thinking yeah. about him. But I, Willie Stargell would be number one. Ah, uh, very yeah, good. The Pirates uh, left fielder and then first baseman, uh, Pops. You know, he really influenced me. Um, you know, he was such a – I grew up in the 60s, and that's when I first learned about baseball. The Pirates won the World Series with him uh, batting cleanup in 71. And he was uh, – just a class guy. Everybody loved Starge when he had that unique batting style where he toiled the bat. He hit those mammoth home runs. Oh. Always such a, a great guy, right? I mean, he was approachable by anybody. Yeah. And so he, he was one. Um, staying with the Pirates, another one, of course, was Roberto Clemente. Yeah. Um, Clemente was, you know, uh, I, I always like to think, you know, some of my charitable things that I do, I learned as a kid, you know, not only from my parents, uh, my mother especially, but but Roberto Clemente was a, such a, and he died trying to deliver. Um, Amazing, and, yeah. And had a great, I was, uh, what was I, 13 at the time that he passed. And that had a great impact on me. Um, Mario Lemieux, of course. Uh, Definitely, I, you're I, a huge hockey I, fan. I'm a huge hockey fan, Golden Knights season ticket holder. I used to be a Penguins season ticket holder when I lived there. And the Penguins, when I lived in Pittsburgh, they always sucked. They were the worst. <laughs> of course, because you're bad out. But the franchise, one day the IRS padlocked their doors. And, you know, it was like, uh, and so now we got Mario Lemieux. And I was in Las Vegas when they won the first Stanley Cup. And I sat there, and it wasn't on TV in Las Vegas. So I had Ooh. to go to the old Las Vegas Hilton Sportsbook. Wow. Watch the game. And when they won the Cup, I'm sitting there. My wife came with me, and I'm crying. And there's people around me, and I'm literally <laughs> crying as the bank oh. won the Cup. And she's like, you're nuts. You're embarrassing me. And she walks away from me. And I just couldn't help it because, you know, here I was. Mario <laughs> so Mario would be one. And then the fourth person I think I would say would be Joe Green. Um, mm. The Steelers uh, defensive tackle, I, in my opinion, the greatest defensive tackle ever to play. I know that other people are going to argue that point. Well, he's a great player. Um, I mean, Joe, one of the, one of the best. And, and he was also a guy, because, you know, you're a kid and you don't understand that these are human beings, too. And you see what they do on the field. Right. And you see, especially in football, rough and tumble sport. And, you know, Joe Green, when he was a rookie, would hit guys in the offensive lineman in the head, would knock them over after the play and all these things. But then, you know, you got to know the human side of Joe Green and what Joe Green was all about. And Joe Green, like Willie Stargell, like Roberto Clemente, just an unbelievable person and, uh, and, and a quality human being. And so those would be my That's four. That's a good list. Kind of my Mount Rushmore of Pittsburgh sports. I like that. That was a very good list. I never heard you say specifically that before. And, um, uh, and I, I, I'm a great admirer of the Pittsburgh sports scene. I, I, you know, there's different – I love seeing different cities and seeing right. their – traditions that Pittsburgh certainly has had that and some of my favorite people are from Pittsburgh not just you but my wife who grew up in Pittsburgh so you know city is near and dear to me and she uh, she, she would probably know about the green weenie so you could ask her about that I'm gonna ask her about that okay I'll, all right I'll, that's I'll, an inside uh, inside story that I'm, I'm definitely gonna ask her about Kevin I, I so much appreciate you taking some time to uh, visit with us and uh, people can, of course, see your work on Yahoo Sports, not only the fine articles you write, but also the videos. 
you're enjoying, I think, doing some of the more video work now, aren't you? Yeah, it, it, it's a lot of fun, you know, getting a chance. I, I had Mike Tyson on recently, uh, did, a, did a fun interview with him, uh, and, you know, trying to just get to know the fighters. And, and since they're not fighting, kind of get, let the fans get to know a little bit yes. more about them than, than they, they otherwise would. And, and for me, it's worked out really great, and uh, I've been really happy with uh, the ability to do that. It's kind of an extra thing that I've been doing, and it seems like it's been pretty well received so far. All right, you're going to run me out of my out of my business now. You're not, not happy a, enough to be the man who is a more Hall of Fame than I even knew existed. Pardon? I said you were in more Hall of Fame than I even knew existed. You know what? I let me tell you something. Those checks that I have to send out to try and get in there, it's getting expensive. They amount up to something, huh? Yeah. Hey, Kevin, thank you so so much for visiting with us, and um, everybody will enjoy your stories and videos on Yahoo Sports, and hopefully we'll get to visit again soon. I appreciate it. Al. Good luck with the podcast. I really love it. Thank you. Take care. Amen. So that was my discussion with Kevin Ioli. He is always insightful and always interesting. Trip and uh, really just one of the finest boxing writers I've known. Well, what's, you know, everyone said that Kevin Ioli has worked his way up into a tough sport and been national, but he is one of the guys who took advantage of how local newspapers stopped having as many sports reporters. And when Kevin got on Yahoo, it seemed like, and you mentioned this, he's blossomed. He's the national guy now. Yeah, he really, he really is for sure. So one of the funny things you had mentioned in their flashback is that fight, Castillo fight 4,500 people at Mandalay Bay. Yeah. I've talked to 35,000 people that are there. <laughs> there, is, there are a lot of invisible people there. That is always the way it is, isn't it? The, the, if somebody pitches a no-hitter or there's a great fight, you talk to all these people that say, oh, I was there. And you know what? I, the, the Cubs had a pitcher a million years ago, Don Cardwell, pitched a no-hitter in one of those afternoon, daytime afternoon Cub games that they used to have many, many years ago where nobody was there. You know, you'd have three or 4,000 people and rattling around Wrigley Field, and so many people claimed they were there, but, uh, but they weren't. Uh, well, we have some questions, do we not, from some of the, the folks out there? We do. Uh, first question. Al had a question for you uh, from your podcast. Do you think Arturo Gotti deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? It seems to be a debate since he got in. He was one of my favorite fighters to watch, but do you have to think that he has it talent-wise, and was he Hall of Fame worthy? Okay, this is a a debate that um, it divides many people. Uh, I seldom talk about my Hall of Fame vote. Uh, I do get a vote on uh, who goes into the boxing, International Boxing Hall of Fame. Some people talk about their votes. I don't normally. I don't discuss who I voted for, who I didn't vote for. And I've never really publicly discussed this until now. Um, but we have the question, and uh, I thought, why, why not make my feelings known? First, let me start out by saying that I think Arturo Gatti was fantastic for the sport of boxing. He was an action fighter who created more action-filled and exciting fights than probably any other boxer of the last 50 years. I mean, almost all of his fights were, the competitive ones, were exciting. They were just thrilling to watch. He was always on the verge of disaster and oftentimes came back. Though nine times in his 49-fight career, he was not able to win. 
And therein lies the question. Did Arturo Gatti, despite the fact that he gave us so much excitement and was so good for the sport of boxing, does he deserve to be in the Boxing Hall of Fame? I did not vote for him. Uh, and so my answer to that is no. Uh, Arturo Gatti fought a good schedule of fighters. You know, he fought a lot of good fighters. Um, so it wasn't as if he didn't fight good fighters. But when the time came for him to step up and beat better fighters, he was unable to do it. He lost to contenders like Ivan Robinson, and he lost to twice Angel Manfredi, Gabriel is a former champion, of course, to Oscar De La Hoya and Floyd Mayweather. Now, those are excusable losses for even somebody that you could say could be in the Hall of Fame. But he was unable to step up at the moments when he needed to show that he was a top quality fighter. Uh, and he wasn't a world champion. And so, uh, or at least a recognized one. And so it leaves us with the question, do we honor him as a truly Hall of Fame worthy fighter? One of the reasons I say no is because there's so many fighters that, you know, are on the bubble to get into the Hall of Fame that haven't, uh, who have much better resumes than him. And I think it's kind of insulting to those fighters uh, when you put somebody in who doesn't just doesn't have a, a Hall of Fame resume. And again, this does not diminish what Arturo Gatti did for the sport. Um, you know, his three fights with Mickey Ward remain one of the most exciting trilogies we've seen in boxing in many, many years. And I, for one, could see a great ex exhibit at the Hall of Fame about that trilogy that would kind of replace the idea that Arturo Gatti's in the Hall of Fame. Um, many of my colleagues, when this vote came up, were torn on this issue. And I know that some of them voted for Arturo Gatti, despite the fact that they may kind of agree with my viewpoint, but they felt this was one of those times when they would um, kind of put sentiment first and and uh, and not go based on purely the 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 facts and what they thought was the case, uh, and so Arturo Gatti did get into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Uh, it's it's an issue, as I said, that has divided people. I am confident that people are going to watch this, and not everyone, Trip, believe it or not, is going to like me after this. I know it's hard <laughs> for you to believe that anybody could not like me, but um, some will be distressed with me, but And while we have a second, you are inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame in New York State. Can you give our, our viewers and listeners just a quick 30 seconds on how great it is and how much fun it would be for a boxing fan to visit? Oh, yeah. Well, of course, I'm in the International Boxing Hall of Fame, uh, and then the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame is one of the ones that I'm in, and and, and it's you know, it's a great honor to be in, uh, to be thought of for those. You know, those Hall of Fames are for the boxers and boxers are the people that make the sport special. So for when people like me or other people that are associated with the sport are allowed into these entities, um, you feel like you're very fortunate to, for that to happen. And it's, uh, you know, it's an amazing, uh, you know, an amazing range of emotions hits you when you're, 
when when that happens in 2012 when i was inducted in the international boxing hall of fame i'm looking on the stage and there's tommy hearns and mark johnson and freddie rose michael buffer and uh on the stage and i we all talked afterwards you know we 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 were it, it was just a very emotional and exciting moment and I was allowed in, but it was a $24 ticket that got me in. <laughs> you did have to pay your way in, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> we've got another question. I listened to the third podcast. One question that comes up when talking boxing with friends, what stops big fights from happening? And is it the promoters or the sanctioning bodies that cause the problems? And then finally, does UFC have an advantage because the best fights are under one brand? Yeah, well... In the world of mixed martial arts, there are a couple of organizations. Of course, the UFC is the, the most popular. There's Bellator, which also, ha, you know, has a lot of great fighters and has made inroads. But for even when you take those two organizations, they, the fighters fight within those banners. So, yes, they, they, can, they do have a little bit of an advantage in that they can make the best fights without worrying about uh, network affiliation or prom promoters within their uh, sport, and they can just go ahead and, and make it happen. Um, boxing's in a little different situation, obviously. Uh, I think part of the reason, it, it's an evolving kind of a thing, because at some points, it's the promoters and their, and their um rivalry that is the major thing that makes the fight hard to do sometimes it's network affiliation by those promoters and where these fights what platforms these fights are sent out to the fans sometimes it's the fighters themselves and their camps who who may have uh financial demands that make a fight not happen or may not be interested uh so there's a variety of reasons why these fights sometimes don't get made I am a believer that we are starting to see a change in that and have in recent times. The poster boy for that would be the Deontay Wilder Tyson Fury fight, which um, in which top rank boxing and uh, the PBC um, got together, involved two networks, uh, ESPN and Fox that both had uh, rights to the fighters uh, and and they all got together to make that fight. And it was great for the sport of boxing. Bob Arum on our podcast a couple of podcasts ago, a couple of episodes ago, talked about the fact that he, top ranking PBC, Al Heyman's company, that the issues that they've had with each other are becoming much less and that their working relationship is actually becoming a good one. That's good news for, for uh, boxing fans. One of the other major promoters, Eddie Hearn, who does match, uh, matchroom boxing, uh, has also on many occasions worked with other promoters, with his fighters, um, and hopefully he'll continue to do it. And my point is that I think there is potentially a sea change coming later this year and into 2020. We've seen some evidence of it, and call me in a Pollyanna if you want. I believe we're going to start seeing more of these fights where we get the, you know, the rosters of one or some promoter with another promoter. Um, Golden Boy is another promoter that has some stars like Ryan Garcia, the lightweight champion. Uh, and they would also be a part of this. 
And so you hope that those promoters can get together. We've seen evidence of it. The other thing that's very important, and we talked about two fights right at the beginning of the show, in which all four of those fighters are under the banner of one promotional group. In this case, it was, it was PBC. Very important that those fights are made because when you have fighters under your banner, there's really not that big an excuse not to make those fights. Um, and I think they need to be made. A perfect example, uh, and we've seen, I mentioned some of the 154-pound fights that the PBC people have made that have been terrific in, within the division and within that body of talent. Bob Arum and his top-ranked um, company have on the books a fight between Teofimo Lopez in the lightweight division and Vasily Lomachenko. That's an important fight, a great fight. And so there they are taking fighters that are under their banner and making it. We need to see the promoters do that as well. Uh, so I'm very optimistic, or at least cautiously optimistic, that boxing is going to do more of that in the, um, in the upcoming uh, year or two. So hopefully we'll get some great matches in the sport of boxing. And um, when the sport comes back, it's going to be a little more challenging because you don't have the money, as we said earlier, from the, uh, the gate proceeds. But I still think uh, it can happen. Uh, and you and I will be back again uh, for our next episode. And on that one, we're going to be uh, highlighting Steven Espinosa, my boss at Showtime, who uh, has been at the helm of Showtime Sports and thus Showtime Boxing for a while now. And it should be interesting to hear what he has to say. Well, Showtime is going to be very important, as you mentioned, with the lack of gate throughout 2020, conceivably into 2021. Having Showtime and some of these other networks step up and maybe write checks that they right. previously wouldn't do is going to be so great for the sport of boxing. And wouldn't it be great if, if people get used to the fact they're going to see two or three great matches a month? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, we'll see how it all plays out. We'll know better in the months to come. Boxing, we know, is coming back pretty soon and hopefully with all those great matches. Well, we will see you next time here on Albert Einstein Unplugged. Take care, everybody.